Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Helen McKenna, I'm a senior fellow here at the King's Fund and I'm going to be your host. Today we're going to be talking about the NHS workforce in terms of race equality and representative leadership. And the aim of the discussion is to look at where the NHS currently is at on these issues, how things have changed over time, how health compares to other sectors, and then what is being done right now to improve things. And today I'm joined by some fantastic guests from a range of settings, but rather than me introduce you all, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. So let's start with you, Yvonne Cogkill, and as well as telling us a bit about who you are and what you do, as we're talking about workforce issues today, can you also tell us about the most unusual or awful job that you've ever had? Okay, so my name is Yvonne Coghill and I am the director of the Workforce Race Equality Standard in the NHS, NHS England, soon to be NHSI and NHSE. (laughs) And the acronym is usually called the RES. So probably for the rest of this uh, discussion, I will be mentioning the RES. So what's the most unusual job that I had. I started to work because I'm probably older than all of you put together in this room. Many, many, many years ago at age 14, when I started to work in a wimpy bar. And I remember one Saturday morning, we all were standing outside having a laugh and a joke and messing around as you do at 14 years old. Um, And the gattos that were piled high to serve to guests all went over. Smack. I remember this because the guy's name was Pete, who was our manager, and he could have only been about 24, but we thought he was really old. Because he was at Um, that time. And he came and he just looked at it. He looked at it and he said not a word, nothing. He didn't say a thing, (laughs) just, you know, clear it up. And we all worked all day, and then, of course, at the end of the day, you go for your pay. None of us got a penny. Not a penny. Wow. Today, the work that you've done will pay for those cakes. So it was, I've never forgotten it, it was absolutely, it was fascinating, but it was probably one of the worst, but also one of the best jobs that I've ever had, because it was such a laugh. Wow, a whole day of work, without knowing that you weren't getting any money for it. Yeah, clever. I used to love Wimpy as well, so it's put me off. Not anymore. No. (laughs) Wimpy, it's over for me now. Dion. My name is Dion Daniel, I'm a senior nurse in the NHS. In terms of the most unusual job I've ever had, it'd probably be this one. So my full title is Project Lead, Nursing Workforce Remodeling Research Project. And basically I'm doing an action research project, yeah. looking at um, new roles and how that sort of fits into the NHS. I guess it's unusual because people mainly focus on operational roles within the NHS. Yeah. And, and sometimes when you've got an academic slant, it seems as it should only be in the university. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm excited because we always talk about how do we bring research into practice. And actually the best way to do that is to research in practice. Yeah. So I'm really excited about the role. It's the longest title in the universe, <laughs> but <laughs> I love it so far. Thank you. And Ben. Hi, I'm Ben Morin, the Workforce Director at University College London Hospitals. Long title. Um, and my most unusual job was probably about 1995 when I had the summer in America working on a camp looking after children. And my job was to wake them all up in the morning by playing the trumpet at the top of the hill <laughs> over the lake, uh, which was a really lovely setting. But I soon met some fellow counsellors 
um, who decide to do things like take the valves out of my trumpet, <laughs> put Rice Krispies in my trumpet, oh all the things that got me in lots of trouble. So I look back with fond memories of what they did and we're still in contact and they're still sending me videos and photos of all the things they did to me. So Aww. that was probably my most unusual job. Fantastic. And so can far. I just check, Ben, did you, can you actually play the trumpet or was it just I blow think down this instrument? They might say something different. <laughs> it's harder if you have things stuck inside it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot harder. So I thought it would be worth at the outset, just starting with some broad questions to understand a little bit about the facts about where we are now. What does the data say, Yvonne? The NHS is, is a very diverse organisation. And in fact, it's probably the most diverse organisation in Europe. Mm. Uh, we are the biggest organisation in Europe. Nearly 21% of our workforce come from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. So that's thousands yeah. of, of staff, nearly 45% of our doctors are from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. Nearly 25% of our nurses and midwives are yeah. from those backgrounds. And of course, it varies by region. Yeah. And of course, London, being London, mm-hmm. uh, has many more black and ethnic minority people working in it. And some organisations have 40, 50, 60% of black and ethnic minority people working yeah. in it. So the NHS is one of those organisations that has embraced diversity that shows very, very much in the numbers of BME people we have working in the NHS. Mm. What it struggles with, I think, is is inclusion. Yeah. What happens in terms of leadership, say, at the trust board level? How representative are we looking at when it comes to that? So what we know is that people are less likely to be at board level, particularly at executive board level, if they come from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. And we have about 5% um, of, of people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds in those really senior level positions. So wow. um, it's, it's not brilliant. It's not good. We have a real problem with pipeline yeah. in, in the NHS and, and, and people getting stuck at band five and six. So I think that, you know, when you look at the numbers of BME people nearly pushing, you know, 20, 21 percent mm. and at board level, it's, you know, five, six percent. Then you think to yourself, mm, there is a problem, there's something going on here. Yeah. Do we know the data on national bodies as well? We are going to be producing another report within the next two weeks on the arm's length bodies. Uh, and this time we're looking at eight. And the picture is much worse for arm's length bodies than it is in the <laughs> NHS as a whole. But I just might add that this is this is a national, international problem. This yeah. is not just about the NHS. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask about that because mm. how does the NHS compare to other sectors mm. when it comes to diversity mm. of its workforce and also representative yeah. leadership? You know, is the NHS actually ahead? Are you looking at me again? Yeah, I'm going to look at you. <laughs> Well, the answer to that question is yes. Yeah. Um, And I and I I say this to to senior leaders because what people say to me is, Yvonne, you know, it's always bad news. It's bad news. But actually, it's good news because we are actually looking at the problem. Mm. And what I've said to them is actually it's a great story because what the story is is that we as an NHS recognise that we need to look at the problem, decide that we need to do something about it, and actually we are now doing something very very positive. Not only positive, we're the only organisation that are doing the thing that we're doing, to my knowledge, internationally, yeah. which is to compare black and ethnic minority experience with white experience and close the gap mm-hmm. on those experiences so that everybody has what we call equity. 
Okay, thank you. And Ben, so Yvonne has kind of pointed out that the NHS has opened itself up, that this is not ex- this problem is not exclusive to the NHS. In fact, it's a much broader problem and is an international one. Do you think, though, that the NHS as an institution, if you can call it an institution, has a problem specific to itself? Yes, I do. I think, given the quality of people within the NHS and its importance to our country in so many different ways, there is no more important starting place for thinking about workforce, leadership, management, than thinking about equity and inequity um, in the way that we employ and the relationship between the way we do that and patient and public outcomes in terms of health and well-being. And the great value of the Workforce Race Equality Standard is the transparency it offers, um, the way it shines light on things that we need to get fundamentally better at in so many different ways. The NHS has got a long way to go, um, and what we need to do is keep working and focusing on it. This can't be seen as a temporary, a one-year, two-year programme. It must be driving the action day-to-day of colleagues across Mm -hmm. the system. Um, So I'm I'm really, I I feel as though I'm in two places on this. I'm I'm embarrassed to an extent as a leader of the NHS about the position we're in, but enthused by the opportunity of really making this the starting point for the way that we think about so much more. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it's really important that people like Ben say the things that he has been saying. You know, Yvonne Coghill says it, and well, she would say that, wouldn't mm. she? Um, Dion says it, or, you know, mm. you know. But when white middle-class people start to speak up and say, actually, this isn't right, mm. um, we need to look at this through different lenses, uh, other people's experiences, we need to think about ways in which we can change the NHS, not just because it's the right thing to do, but actually because it is important for patient care, patient safety and patient satisfaction, that we have a fully included, engaged and motivated workforce. Mm. I think over the years, I've been doing this for a long time now, um, we now have so much more in terms of evidence that if you have an included and motivated workforce, you then have higher quality patient care, patient safety and patient satisfaction. Um, And we have people like the wonderful Professor Michael West and Jeremy Dawson who have done amazing work around all of this. So there's nowhere to hide with it anymore. There's no, well, actually, let's give it to the band six E&D lead over there to deal with this issue. This is a real leadership issue, which needs to be looked at head on from the board and led by board members like Ben. Mm. And can I just explore something that you said earlier in your answer there, which was around that it takes somebody like Ben, who's a middle class white man, to make that point for people to listen. Is that really how it feels? It, 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 they don't necessarily just listen to people like Ben, but it's so unusual to have white middle-class men standing up on platforms and talking about this agenda with confidence and understanding because the complexity of the the issues are very real. Uh, This is about people's values, their beliefs, um, what they believe to be true about others. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a tick box process thing. And usually people who are senior um, haven't got the uh, experience, the knowledge to be able to to articulate it, how this thing is for mm. lots of people mm. in the NHS. So they, rather than say anything, they say nothing. Yeah. 
So when you hear somebody articulating uh, the issues as clearly um, and as passionately, actually, as Ben, it, it, it really does work. Yeah. It, it, you know, people will hear it and yeah. senior leaders hear each other yeah. as well because that's the communities we have in the NHS. Yeah, and that comes back to the problem of senior leadership not being representative, so you're not hearing it from... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, that will make sense. So you actually just started to run through the case for doing this work. I think it's it's helpful for people listening to understand yes. what the argument is for doing stuff about this. Obviously, there's the moral case and the fact that it's right. Yes. But it's, let's run through some of the evidence and the data. Well, I'll, I'll have a go. Uh, but I mean, I'm next to some uh, great minds on this. So I, I look upon this from a starting place of the interaction with an individual member of the public or a patient who should rely upon the very best from any health service. And the quality of that interaction depends upon the individual supporting them in whatever clinical, therapeutic, management, administrative role in being focused on their interests and and improving their outcomes. So I'm interested about the research that Yvonne referred to earlier on that's very clear about the fact that if you have a combination of skills and experiences and backgrounds and perspectives in that interaction, then you're going to lead to far better outcomes for the patient, the member of the public and the member of staff. And largely the research I've seen backs up that notion pretty clearly. The other thing I'd say, which is, is sort of evidence, but it's probably not what you're seeking, but I hope it helps, is the most powerful thing for me, the most enjoyable part of what I have a chance to do, is gaining two forms of feedback. One is from a member of a patient who might say, or a colleague, or a, a member of their family or friends, what a difference the NHS has made to their life at the mm. hardest of times. Mm. And the other that I frankly enjoy as much and sometimes more is when a colleague says to me I'm really grateful for what a colleague enabled in my working life that someone brought an evidence of inequity disadvantage a really bad day to me and you did something about it not just because it was perceived to be the right thing or for a flashy moment but because it's changed my life and my working experience so I see those those two forms of experience and that evidence that I see in my day-to-day working life that brings back to me the importance of, of what good management can achieve very quickly yeah. uh, to improve improve outcome. Mm. On the other side of this, I'd say that when things go wrong, mm. when you're making a wrong decision about a disciplinary and investigation, you can have a really harmful impact on someone's mm. life, not just for a few hours of that hearing, but for the days, the weeks, months afterwards, because mm. like, it affects colleagues in a way which many white leaders have not experienced. Yeah. Uh, because they're not living in the societal context. They haven't had the life experience that many other colleagues have had, which has affected their their viewpoint, affects yes. their ability to afford the family life they wish to. So we need to be much more informed about the context in which people come to work and their wider life experience too when we're thinking about the NHS. Thank you, Ben. Something that Yvonne always says, I'm going to pinch your data (laughs) and regurgitate it. The thing that always strikes me is actually is that the evidence and the thing is, we know that actually if your staff from a BME background are happy, your other staff are happy. And, you know, there is evidence that talks about the experience, staff experience and how that relates to patient experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we spend a lot of time trying to get the patient experience better and we're not focusing on the people who are delivering the care, yeah. and I, I think that's the thing that struck me and I've remembered always, and I use it everywhere. Sorry. Please to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I think the question is an interesting one. You know, why are we doing this? Mm. 
And, you know, when I'm giving my talks, we usually give four reasons mm -hmm. for doing it. One of them is it's the right thing to do. You know, we're all human beings. We're all here. Uh, we all have blood in our veins. We all have families. We all, you know, go to work for a reason. You know, we're all here for ourselves and we want to have decent lives. That's everybody. Yeah. So it's the moral it's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do, to, be, to treat everybody well and equitably. We also know that it is part of the Equality Act. Mm -hmm. um, we're a public sector body. And as a public sector body, we have a duty, the public sector equality duty, to actually promote equality and inclusion and to make sure that we uh, are an exemplar. The third reason is financial reason. And we know that if you are from a black and ethnic minority background, um, you're more likely to go off and work for agencies and banks. We also know that if you are um, not being treated well, you're more likely to go off sick. Yeah. You are more likely to look for another job. And all of those things add up to um, costing the organizations much more. And I think that focuses the minds yeah. of senior <laughs> leaders. Yeah. And, and engagement costs nothing. It doesn't cost you anything to be mm. decent to your member of staff, to talk to everybody, to include everybody, yeah. to share with everybody. It costs nothing. And the final point, of course, is the quality case. Yeah. And we know that you get a better standard of care from people that are cared for. Yeah. And if you don't feel that you're cared for, potentially you won't care as much. And it also means that um, potentially you will not want to talk about things that have gone wrong for mm -hmm. fear of the sanctions against you. Ben's already talked about the fact that, you know, as a BME person, you're, these issues, if you're going through disciplinary or performance management or whatever it is, they stay with you, they sit with you, they are part of who you are for mm -hmm. a long, 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 long time. And that unhappiness and that I don't want to go as far as to call it depression, but sometimes it, it can be, yeah, really impacts people, their families, and the way they perform. So the quality of care. So those reasons are the reasons why the NHS has decided that really we have to take the bull by the horns and do something yeah. about this because it will, in fact, impact on patient care. And I think it's really helpful for people to have those that evidence, those reasons in mind. So yeah. thank you for running through those. I want to move on now to the... So the topic of staff experience and thinking about, from your perspective, Dion, maybe not talking about BARTS, mm. um, but other organisations that you've worked at. Is there a problem in terms of a disconnect between the leadership and their ability to understand the issues that are affecting staff at lower levels of an organisation? Yeah, I think it is. I think, um, I think... You know, if you're in an organisation, for example, where a lot of people in the senior roles don't they don't live or they don't understand the context yeah. of the environment they're in, then that's going to impact on how things differ, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think leaders who do it well, they recognise people for their skills. Yeah. They, they're happy with differences and they're happy with, you know, peop what people bring to the table. So I, I will quote my present manager, actually, even though she's only been my present manager for six weeks. I have never felt so appreciated for the other things that I, I bring. I'm a nerd. I love, I love academia. I love data. Mm. I love facts. And, and that is being used. And I, I live on social media, by the way, as well. <laughs> and, and that I have been able to use that so much more than in all the 20-something years I've been in the NHS. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think it's really important point that actually the people making a difference to inclusion are not necessarily having to be people from a BME background. They are people who get it. Yeah. Yeah. But if we make this right, people will be happy. Mm -hmm. 
So You've got to name your managers. We call them I'm out. It's going to be Debbie Giraz. I'm just going to say it. Hey, Debbie Giraz. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask as well, how useful is the NHS staff survey in terms of giving us a sense of inclusivity and staff culture? I'm assuming, Yvonne, you have a view on that. Yeah, uh, I do, actually. Um, it's it's really, really interesting. And I think that um, where we are with the Workforce Race Equality Standard at mm. the moment is we, we use, and I think people know this, um, some of the staff survey yeah. for some of our indicators and some of the the electronic staff record for some of the indicators as well. And what we found over the last three years is that the uh, workforce indicators, the SR indicators, are shifting in the right direction quite relatively quickly, actually. But what we call the cultural indicators, which are the ones from staff survey, Mm. looking at bullying and harassment and that kind of thing, aren't moving as quickly. No surprise there at all, um, because we know that culture is very, very difficult to change in organisations. So not surprised, actually, that some of the indicators are moving quite quite quickly and, very, and doing reasonably well. Yeah. But some of the staff survey indicators aren't. Yeah. So somebody said on Twitter uh, when the um, staff survey came out, well, if you look at it, Yvonne, you can see that black and ethnic minority people are saying they really, really enjoy working in the NHS and they love being in the NHS much more than their white colleagues. And I said, yes, that's true. But what you are not taking into consideration is the fact that black and ethnic minority people have uh, uh, higher tolerance levels than their white counterparts. So it has to be really, really, really bad for BME mm. people before they actually start to complain because their expectation is that it's going to be bad for them anyway. Mm. So white people will will actually say before BME people that this is horrible for me, I'm out of here, I'm going. And we actually know that because we know that in London now we have more BME nurses than we have white nurses. There's 27,000 BME nurses, there's 25,000 white nurses. We also know that that picture is show. we can see that picture across the whole of the country, 5,000 more BME nurses, one and a half thousand less white nurses. Mm. So people from BME backgrounds have higher levels of tolerance. So they will say, I have a job, thank God, I'm staying, so it's great. So they tick the box. Mm. Whereas non-BME people are more likely to want other things that will make them happy. So people need to understand why the data is as it is, yeah. as opposed to saying, oh, well, look, all these BME people are really happy. Yeah. We haven't got a problem. So you need to uh, get beneath the surface oh, yes. and not make assumptions. Yes, yeah. uh, okay. I can understand. And in terms of the external environment, so thinking about the government's hostile environment around immigration policy, thinking about Brexit and the anticipation of that. Do you notice those things having an impact? Are you seeing on the ground, Dion, the cultural change or numbers shift or what what, what are you seeing? So there's numbers shift, there's cultural change. Um, As I said, I work in East London and I'm seeing too many episodes of people having hijabs pull off of their heads and being beaten up in the streets. And it's a shock to me. Yeah. Um, and in London, that's supposedly most diverse. Um, the, you know, I, I live in Eastbourne, which isn't as diverse as <laughs> London. But there's a lot of sort of off comments as well, you know. And sorry, is that when you say about the hijabs, that's in the NHS? Or that's just no, it's around in the area, it's in yeah. the area. And obviously it's affecting people who work in the NHS. Okay. And, and the comments are, and the, the comments, comments are in the yeah. NHS. And the comments are in the NHS. Yeah. I, I have colleagues, because I think people probably know not to mess with me by now, but I have colleagues who have been told <laughs> things like, don't you feel guilty? Don't you feel guilty that you're taking jobs for British people? You know, I still have 
people who who were born here two and three generations who still ask where they're mm. from and that sort of thing it's getting worse and it's getting bolder yeah um i i think we've had a lot of comments particularly in terms of violence and abuse of staff you see that there's a rise so that some organizations are having to make a direct intervention to support that yeah. mm. I, I remember going to see a, a patient who was very unhappy and he wouldn't open his eyes to speak to me. and I did, We did get there eventually, but he said he just wanted to be in England. <laughs> and that's what I had to explain to him that <laughs> so that this is the staff that we've got here today. Yeah. And we need to work with them so you can get better to go home. Because mm. he, he was banned from his local hospital because of his behavior right. and came to, to man. But he wouldn't, he was very abusive towards his staff. Mm. And what saddened me really was that staff felt that it was acceptable to have that sort of abuse heaped on them. Yeah. Um, and and that that, that that to me was was strange because it was a difference in where I live. Yeah. In terms of how that will be dealt with to where I work, where the population is so much different, yeah. and that's increasing. Um, and yeah, I've probably spoken too much, mm. but I also have colleagues from EU who been who've had abuse, mm. who people are spitting on and whatnot. And I think it's just a shame because actually you can't have those views. You don't have a choice what doctor and nurse you get to when you come into hospital. Yeah, no, it's outrageous. And Ben at UCLH. Yeah, I think whatever people feel about Brexit, however they voted, I haven't met anybody in the NHS who hasn't got a very clear and consistent view about what they don't want to happen. And that is that they don't want to have any restrictions on the ability of people to come and work in the NHS other than on the basis of their capability, now or forecast. Um, we need the very best in the NHS. The best of the NHS relies upon the best from the world. It's ridiculous, economically, ethically, on every front, to think about restrictions that pull us back to this idea of a homegrown mentality, yeah. which is something that I thought we'd left well before each of us were born. Uh, yet it seems to be coming back yeah. as a... As a as a supposedly plausible notion for the way we resource the NHS, it's absolutely bonkers. I'd say to people when we have these arguments about immigration and whatnot, the NHS since 1948 mm. has depended on a variety of workforce. If people like my aunt didn't come from Trinidad, the NHS would not exist. Yeah. And that's still the case today. Yeah. In some specialities, if we didn't have a diverse workforce, we would be stuffed. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I know this is not political, but if we think that having a health tax on the EU workers and not having workers from the EU is not going to have an impact on the NHS, we need to think again. Yeah. Because it will be crushing. So if yeah. you go to all the people's services, for example, most of the workforce are staff from a BME background. And I think we're already seeing, actually, yeah. on in nursing, yeah. Yeah. more people left yes. from the EU yeah. last yes. year than joined. So... Mm. There's a real, it is a real problem. 98% less applications to come here Mm -hmm. to do nursing um, since we made the decision that we made. Okay, I want to move on from that depressing depressing note to what can be done. So Yvonne, tell us about what the NHS is doing to tackle this stuff from your perspective on you're working on the workforce race equality standard. Tell us about that. I have to say that the people that I am working with in in the NHS have been outstanding. You know, Simon Stevens, Dido Harding, Lord Pryor, uh, Victor Aluwali, Jane Cummings. These people have put themselves out there to help support the work that I'm doing because they believe that actually it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And we are beginning to reap the 
rewards and the benefits of that, even albeit in a small way, we're seeing some changes, and particularly at senior level, they've bought into this thing called race equality or race equity. There is still lots of work to be done, mm-hmm. and we are beginning to focus now on working on culture. I think the data is one thing. Uh, and people see the data, and but behind each number, each figure is a story, yeah. and the stories that you hear from people are heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And we know that we have work to do with what we call our middle managers. Um, the chief executives that I met in London in December recognise that as well, yeah. and they are going to be meeting in London uh, once a quarter as a learning community so that they can understand what they more they need to do. They're going to contribute financially to having somebody to support this work in London. They're going to, you know, have a, a training and development program designed. I mean, I'm just so excited mm-hmm. about the work that London chief executives have agreed that they're going to do to, in order to move this agenda forward. And I think across the whole of the country, because London's London, other people will be looking to do that as well. We've also used all of the levers that we could possibly, because NHS loves levers, don't they? <laughs> to make sure that when the thing called workforce race equality standard becomes like yesterday's news, mm. this work is still deeply within, embedded yeah. within all of the systems and processes that we have in the NHS. So people will continue to do the work that it needs to do around race equality. So I think we're in a really good place mm-hmm. and I think it's really exciting and I'm really looking forward to uh, the next generation taking it forward. Yeah. I'm absolutely 100% sure that the NHS is going to be a, a beacon of best practice mm-hmm. internationally, not just in England. Okay. I want to leave people listening to this episode yeah. with an idea of a positive intervention yeah. that they can yeah. make. Um, so what is the one thing yeah. you would want people to take away from this episode that they can go away and do to change the situation, starting with Dion? For me, it's, it's something I say to everyone, be curious. Mm. And I think sometimes we're in this position because people are not curious. Don't make assumptions. Mm. Mm. If someone speaks quickly or has an accent, understand the background for that. If yeah. someone has a different viewpoint. And I think when we start being curious... We, we then have the opportunity to understand people and to not make assumptions. Mentor different people. Don't just mentor the people who look like you. Yeah. And be mentored by different people. So one of the commitments I made when I did the Readinar program is that I will mentor people from different backgrounds so that people understand the experience of working with people from different cultures, colors, etc. And that's the thing for me. Be curious. Yeah. Thank you. Ben. I went to see Laura Mavula sing at the weekend Ooh. and she was outstanding. I was lucky enough to be near the front and I could see she had some tattoos on her arm and one of them said, this girl never stops. And I looked into why she'd written that on her arm um, afterwards. I didn't quite find out why. <laughs> but I learned about somebody who, though terribly talented, had been affected by appalling racism throughout her life and I think my learning from that tattoo was we should never stop thinking about those issues we've discussed on this podcast and I don't just mean stop for a week or a month I think this is consideration for us hour to hour in our role as leaders and a test for any leaders we bring on or choose. Thank you and Yvonne? For me it's read, education. I didn't become a 
what, I, what people call now a subject matter expert overnight. And I think it was reading so many books and articles and amazing things that people have done in terms of research looking into this thing called race inequality it, it, it's there's a, the history to it is just fascinating you know what as human beings we have done to each other yeah. in order to make the make the dollar or the shilling or the pound or whatever it is um and, and what we have done to each other and why it is we as a country are where we are today because most people don't know yeah. they have no concept of what other countries and cultures have done to make this country what it is today they have they have no idea and when i talk to people and this is senior people as well they don't read about this stuff mm. it's not taught in school mm. it's not so my one thing is educate people and if you can't educate people then they need to read for themselves yeah can I put a late, a late further one out? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Which builds on the great Yvonne Cockhill suggestion. There's a book by Reni Edo Lodge yeah. called Why Don't Talk to White People About Race. Yes. It's an amazing book, it, yeah. I am um, giving out free copies because I'm so impressed with it. <laughs> if anyone here listens to this podcast... And Talk to Ben, he's got loads! I will give you one of these books. Copies, yeah. It's... it's Outstanding. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks to everyone who's been listening. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes. And if you have feedback or ideas for topics you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, then please get in touch either on Twitter at The Kings Fund or my account at Helena Macarena. Or you can leave feedback on our website at www.thekingsfund.org.uk. We hope you can join us next time.